Back when I was a kid, I had tons of questions about God. And I think that's why early in my high school years, I picked up this book and I challenged myself to read it from cover to cover. And after I did, I had even more questions about God. I didn't understand this passage or that chapter or how this chapter fit together with that passage. I didn't understand how a good God could do that or allow that or how did this make sense. And I was so bothered by all these questions, I actually wrote them all down in a notebook. And one day I scheduled an appointment with my pastor. I dragged my question skeptical notebook along with me. I opened it up on his desk and I posed to him my hardest questions and I awaited his best answers. In that moment, my pastor had to make a really important choice. He had to decide whether to dismiss it or discuss it. I imagine for him, as a busy pastor, you know, there's a thousand emails to respond to, so many people that need help. Like answering the, the questions of some curious kid would have interrupted his schedule. Uh, he had a lot to do. I wasn't influential. I just came to church. I didn't go to Bible studies. I, I didn't volunteer. I wasn't a big giver to the church. I was just another kid in a big congregation. And he was the one with all the degrees on the wall. I was just a teenager who was reading the book for the first time. But to his immense credit and really to my lifelong benefit, instead of dismissing it, he took the time to discuss it. I just remember when I was a teenager, he recommended that I read this book called When Skeptics Ask. And that book led me on a journey that has lasted now almost 25 years about researching and reading some of the toughest intellectual questions about Christianity and seeing if there are any good and valid answers. You know, this book exposed me to this book, which led me to this book, which led me to another book. I've you know, read books about creation and evolution, books about where the Bible came from. Did people mess with it? Like telephone game, did it get mixed up? Or is it like the original? I've read books by former pastors who are now atheists and former atheists who are now theologians and pastors. I've read books on the resurrection of Jesus. Did it actually happen or was it a made-up story by people who wanted to believe it was true? I've read from every angle. I've read evangelicals and fundamentalists, atheists and agnostics, the best and the brightest minds. And I took all the books off my bookshelf the other day and counted. I think I'm at 33 right now on this topic. And I have to say thanks to my pastor. Uh, thanks to the, the fact that he didn't dismiss a young skeptic, uh, I've grown so much in my faith and my confidence in who Jesus was and what he did. The hard questions didn't push me farther away from the faith. In fact, they proved to me that Christianity is not just true, but it's reasonable. And I want to tell you that story today because I'm guessing you're going to have an experience much like my pastor did. Sometime in your life, someone's going to come to you with a, a tough question about the Bible. It might be your son or your daughter who starts to question the whole church and Jesus thing for the first time. Uh, it might be a classmate who you know, grew up in Christian education and, and now they're starting to ask tough questions because not everyone believes the same thing. It, it might be a comment in you know, the social media comment section. It might be even a question that comes from your own heart. And when those tough questions come, you're going to have to make that same choice that he did. Do you dismiss it or do you discuss it? And it's going to be really tempting, especially if you're in a position of authority as a mom, a dad, a grandma, grandpa, a pastor, or a teacher, to say, you know, just believe it. It's true because we say. 
But I got to tell you, when, when I meet people who don't go to church, so often that's their story. They put up their hand, they ask the question, and they were told to just be quiet and believe it. And when they grew up, they didn't and chose not to. That's why in this series, I want to teach you to do the opposite, to discuss tough questions. And I want to try to model that for you over the next few weeks in this sermon series called Skeptical Faith. I just want to take your tough questions. I want to propose to you some of the toughest questions that people ask about Christianity and see if there aren't some really good answers. So we're going to talk about things like the Bible. Where did it come from? Is it a holy book? Can you actually trust what it says? We're going to talk about people. Are we born naughty by nature? Are we good or evil? Do we need to be saved by Jesus? Are we okay as we are? What about science and faith? Can the two sit in the same boat? Or do thinking people have to choose one or the other? What about heaven and hell? Could a, could a place of eternal suffering exist if a God of eternal love does too? We're going to talk about hypocrisy. Why should you be a church person, a deeply organized religious person, if so many people in organized religion are hypocrites who don't practice what they preach? So, for the next five weeks, we're going to try to tackle all those questions together. But today, before we jump in, I need to tell you about two warnings, um, two dangers that could really blow up this series in a bad way. One's a warning for me as a speaker, and the other is a warning for you as listeners. The warning for me is to remember that reason can't change the human heart. I get into that problem all the time. You know, when I'm preaching and I see people from our church family, and I see the boyfriend who's finally coming for the first time who's not a Christian, and I see the cousin and the coworker, they're here, and I think, oh, you know, if I could just give them the five reasons, they'd have to believe the Bible. But it doesn't work that way. Uh, the Bible itself says that faith comes from hearing the message, that no one can be logic into calling Jesus Lord. In fact, the crazy thing that the Bible claims is it's that the most illogical thing, that God would love bad people, is what actually transforms and changes the, the human heart and gives us the gift of faith. And so I want to be upfront with you that while I'm going to rely on like logic and argumentation and reasoning over the next few weeks, I'm always going to combine that with that illogical message of our deep need for Jesus and the incredible things that he has done. And I'm going to do that without apology. I'm going to do that shamelessly because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It has the power to save people like me and like you. Now for you, here's the warning. I want you to promise me for the next five weeks that you will refuse to whatever me. There's something else I've learned over the years of reading all these books when I meet people who aren't Christians or, or church people that I feel like I have some pretty solid answers to persuade them. And so often they say, whatever. You know, it's like I've used the logic, I've gotten them to really think about something in the corner and maybe they kind of feel stuck because the truth is going to challenge them and ask them to change. And so sometimes people just say, whatever. This especially happens with men and particularly with young men. I, I don't know what the deal is with that, but, you know, they just want to argue and they want to jump to the, yeah, but what about this, but what about this? And sometimes it's really hard for them just to say, huh, yeah, let me think about that. <laughs> So I want you to make me a promise over the next month that you're going to think about it. If any of the arguments, if any of, of the Lord's logic challenges you and asks you to change something about your beliefs or your behavior, but before you react or push it away or not come back, just think, could this be true? 
Is this the best evidence for the, for the case that's being made? So I'll try to do that. You try to do that. And I hope that we can ask some really hard questions here in church and find some of God's best answers. Okay, let's kick it off then here in week one, talking about this, this book. Um, do you know what the word Bible means in Greek? Book. <laughs> Apparently the people who named it weren't very creative. Let's call it book. <laughs> but as you can see on the cover of my Bible, Christians don't just call this a book, they call it the Holy Bible. And the word holy means something that's set apart, something that's different, something that's unique and wonderful. The Christian claim is that this is not just another book written by another group of people. This is actually a book that comes from God himself. They nickname it the Word of God. And the skeptic might ask the question, well, prove it. And Pastor Michael can come up here and say, oh yeah, look at this passage inside the Bible that says all scripture is God-breathed. It comes from, you see, that proves it. <laughs> but you skeptics know that's a, that's a logical answer. That's like saying, I'm the smartest man in the world. Just ask me. Well, there, I just proved it because I am. <laughs> you know, is there any outside authority, is there any other evidence to prove to us that this actually might be what it claims to be the Holy Bible? Last week after church, there was a young man who actually asked me that question. He, he didn't know what today was going to be about. Uh, he stopped me after church and he kind of asked it this way. He, he said, Pastor, um, you know, there are a lot, of, a lot of religions and there are a lot of books and there are a lot of beliefs and a lot of them kind of say the same thing, don't they? That we should love people, we should treat others as we'd like to be treated, that we should be nice to one another on planet Earth. So, Pastor, what do you think about all that? And I thought to myself, now that is the perfect introduction to my next sermon. Because <laughs> it's a really honest and good question. Yeah, there, there are a lot of people out there and a lot of cultures and a lot of beliefs. And Appleton might be the city of 100 Christian churches, but there are countries, whole continents where that's not the case. So why would this be like objectively true and other people's sacred texts and holy books not? Is there any distinction? Is there any evidence to think that Christianity is unique in some powerful and persuasive way? And I wonder what you would say to that question. Uh, if, if your best friend or your classmate or your kid basically asks, why the Bible? Why do you read that? Why do you trust that? M Mom, why are we Christians? Why do we go to church? Why do we have these Bible stories and devotions in our home? Besides just saying, well, that's how I was raised or that's just what we believe, what would you say? Why trust the Bible? Well, today I'm going to give you three of my favorite answers to that question. Three really powerful and persuasive and hopefully not circular arguments to trust that this book actually came from God. So if you have a pen in your hand, uh, let's write down the first one. Why believe the Bible is a holy book? Uh, here's my first answer for you. Uh, let's skip that passage for today. Uh, the first answer I want to give you is the prophet's knowledge. The prophet's knowledge. I think you should be super curious about the origins of the Bible because of what the B.C. prophets knew about the A.D. Jesus. Do you know about Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago? Here's like the Wikipedia version. 
Um, Jesus was conceived and born of a woman named Mary. And he was born in a little town called Bethlehem. Mary and her new husband, Joseph, moved up north to Galilee, to a little city called Nazareth. And there Jesus was raised. And if you would have seen him on the streets, there was nothing special about him. He didn't look like a, a cover model uh, in the Nazareth magazine. Uh, there was nothing majestic about him, nothing glorious. His appearance was like a normal appearance. But when he grew up, he started to preach and he started to teach. And he started to get some attention, but very little of it was positive. In the end, most people dismissed his teaching. They rejected his claims. And in fact, some of his enemies actually arrested him, oppressed him, tortured him, beat him, crushed him, and pierced his hands and his feet on a cross. And yet, despite the oppression and despite the injustice, Jesus didn't open his mouth to defend himself. He just he sat there and he took it. He hung there and he didn't object to it. And he died. There was a rich man who was a follower of Jesus named Joseph who had a tomb and he buried Jesus in this rich grave. But according to the witnesses, on the third day, on Easter morning, Jesus came to life. He came out of the darkness of the tomb and he saw the light once more. Uh, you've heard that story before? Uh, apparently, the prophet Isaiah heard that story too. I want you to look what he wrote in Isaiah chapter 53 in the Bible. He said, He, referring to Jesus, had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life. Hmm. Now, how in the world did Isaiah know that? Nothing special about him. Oppressed, afflicted, pierced, didn't open his mouth, died, buried, not just in any grave, but with the rich in his death. He sees the light of life. How did he know that? Because here's the thing you need to know. Uh, Isaiah wasn't a first century news reporter who witnessed Jesus. He actually lived 700 years before Jesus was born. So reason with me for a second. How did he know that? Was he super good at guessing? <laughs> and how did he know all the rest? In Isaiah chapter 7, uh, he somehow knew that Jesus would be born of a virgin. In Isaiah chapter 9, he knew that he would live in Galilee, the northern part of Israel. In Isaiah 11, he knew that he would come from the family line of Jesse and King David, which Mary was. How did he know that? And how did the rest of the prophets know about Jesus? Five to seven to a thousand years before he came, Micah knew that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Daniel knew the time in history when Jesus would be born. 
Zechariah knew that Jesus would ride on a donkey into Jerusalem. Jeremiah knew that he would be betrayed and he named the amount of silver that he would be betrayed for. David, a thousand years before Jesus, actually said the words that Jesus would later say on the cross. He predicted his crucifixion before the Persians invented crucifixion in the 8th century BC. And he said that his body would not see decay in the grave, but God would raise it from the dead. So you tell me, how did they know that? Maybe the logical answer is they had help. <laughs> they had some special connection to the one who knows all things. That's what the Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1. He explained the prophet's knowledge this way. Prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Was Isaiah human? Were Moses and David and, and Micah and Jeremiah just regular guys? Yes. <laughs> Were they just regular guys who picked up their, their quill and wrote on their parchment? No. The only explanation to the incredible accuracy of the prophecies is that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. The reason we call this the Holy Bible and not just the Bible is because it came from another source, the Holy Spirit himself. Now, just so you know how crazy the odds of those prophecies are, there was a mathematician uh, two or three generations ago who tried to calculate, you know, what are the odds that Isaiah maybe just got lucky? You know, he picked the city, he picked the area, they picked the time frame. Maybe it's just a crazy coincidence. So this mathematician tried to calculate the odds of just eight of those prophecies just happening to come true by chance. And when he crunched the numbers, uh, his analogy was this. Imagine the great state of Texas, massive state in America. Imagine if we covered the entire state of Texas with quarters. Every square inch is covered within the state lines. Not just one quarter deep, but over a foot deep. Then imagine we can take one quarter, we take a sharpie, we put an X on it, we bury it somewhere in the big state of Texas, and we send a blind guy to wade through all the quarters, and he can pick up just one, what do you think the odds are that he finds the X on his first try? The same odds that eight of those prophecies would just happen to come true about Jesus. <laughs> so, if you think the Bible is just written by a bunch of guys who are passionate about their own religion, how do you explain that? Maybe what's true and reasonable is to believe that the Bible isn't just the work of men, but the word of God. That's the first reason I think you should read the Bible, the prophet's knowledge. And grab your pen because here's the second. The second reason I think you should be curious in the Bible is the apostle's witness. The whole center of the Christian faith of Jesus wasn't based on a feeling, a belief, or an experience. It was based on what people witnessed. I thought about the comparison with some other religions that you can find in this world and it made me think of this book. This is the Quran, uh, the holy text of the Muslim religion. Back in 2009, I read the Quran cover to cover and I got to learn a little bit about where this book came from. According to Muslim scholars, in the early 600s AD, about 600 years after Jesus, a guy named Muhammad went into a cave near the city of Mecca and there the angel Gabriel revealed to him the word of Allah, or God. 
It was the first in a series of revelations that Muhammad would memorize and then later repeat to his friends. Uh, he himself was illiterate. He couldn't read or write. So he told his friends, they memorized Muhammad's words, and they eventually wrote them down in this book that we call the Quran. Now, the challenging part about that is that it's impossible to prove. I mean, did God actually speak to Muhammad in that cave? Uh, I don't know. And you can't either. Were there any eyewitnesses who heard the voice, who, who saw the angel? No. So the, this entire book kind of lives and dies on whether you believe one man and his one claim. There's no outside evidence, no one who saw, heard, and testified. It, it all comes down to him. And that really struck me how different this book is from this book. Because you know where the New Testament came from? The witnesses. The story of Jesus and his teaching didn't come from one person who had a feeling, an experience, or a dream. It came from the many, many people who witnessed what happened 2,000 years ago. The Apostle Paul explained this message of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, the prophets. That he was buried. That he was raised in the third day according to the scriptures. And, here comes, that he appeared to Cephas. And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. He appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. Uh, John would say, not what we felt or believed, what we saw, what we touched, what we heard with our own ears and eyes, that's what we preach to you. Dr. Luke, a first century historian, said he investigated and he interviewed, he talked to the eyewitnesses because he didn't want the, the gospel to be based on some personal experience that couldn't be proven, but something that could. I think that's why Paul says in these verses, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people and most of them are, they're still living. <laughs> if you'd have said, yeah, they're all dead, so you just have to trust me, Christianity would be hard. But if you could interview the people who saw Jesus and heard Jesus, it would be very, very different. You know, here 2,000 years later, it's a little bit difficult for us. We can't go see Jesus. But 2,000 years ago, as the message of Christianity spread, this is what it was based on. When Peter and Paul and the other apostles went to share the teaching of Jesus, they didn't talk about their personal feelings or how God had really changed their lives or they really felt God whisper to them in the still of the night. No, they spoke about what they saw, what people witnessed and heard. My favorite example of that comes right near the end of the book of Acts. Uh, the Apostle Paul has been arrested and he actually has a chance to share his faith with a powerful king named Agrippa and an another powerful politician named Festus. And I want you to look at the way that Paul explains the Christian faith. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. You believe a guy came back from the dead? You're nuts. Look at Paul's response. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. 
The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Why would we believe this, Paul? This, this sounds crazy. Well, because we saw it. It didn't happen in a quiet cave, not in some secret corner. Jesus was nailed to a cross at the crossroads of the biggest city in ancient Israel. So investigate, Paul said. See if it actually happened. See if Jesus was real and if what he said was true. Now, if you don't regularly read your Bible, um, I hope that inspires you to do so. That this, this church thing, this Christian thing, it's not just like one personal belief that we have among many. There, there's something really unique and compelling about it. A reason that I think you should open this book every day of the rest of your life. And I thought that was a really powerful message until I asked another pastor for advice. Uh, there's this colleague in our denomination who is like wicked smart. I've read this many books. He's probably read five times this many. Uh, his name is Luke. And before he became a pastor, he was a philosophy major, deep thinker, smart, multicultural uh, background with his parents and all their travels. And I reached out to him because he knows so much. He, he uh, is actually a pastor in Canada where people are much less likely to believe the Bible on a university campus where people are much, much, much less likely to read the Bible. So I told him, like, if I want to convince people, persuade people to read the Bible, what do you think? The prophet's knowledge, the odds of the predictions, and the apostles' witness, it's true and reasonable. And I gave him my pitch and he said to me, uh, so Mike, is that why you started reading the Bible? Shoot. <laughs> I thought, you know, he's right. I, I didn't become a Christian because I had calculated the odds of the quarters in Texas. Um, I had become a Christian before those things and learned them afterwards. And I wrote down his quote that, that he said to me when I called him up. He said this, Mike, I think it's great that God gave us all that evidence, but we Christians trust the Bible because Jesus Christ did. And he's right. I mean, the reason I, I love and trust this book, even the parts that are hard for my brain to sometimes understand, is because Jesus trusted it. He read this book. He quoted this book. He said that this book actually came from heaven itself. And the reason I'm so willing to trust Jesus is not just because he said he was God and was raised from the dead to prove it. But it's because he offers what no one else can, an answer to our most skeptical questions. This is the third, but I think the most powerful reason you should read the Bible if you're taking notes. It's Jesus' uniqueness. That Jesus is offering to you an answer that no other religion, belief, or philosophy will. It's very popular these days to say that, you know, we all kind of believe the same thing. We should be nice to each other and we should be good people and religions have different names and, and customs and outfits that the leaders wear. But in the end, it all boils down to the same thing. But honestly, that's just not true. I mean, I've read this book. Do you know what this says? This says that if you've done something bad, if you've been impatient or selfish or argumentative, if you haven't been generous to the poor, if you haven't forgiven people, if you haven't loved God with your whole heart, 
That's going on the scales. Allah knows. And on the judgment day, every wrong thing you have done will be put there. So you know the answer according to this book? You better be good. You better fix it. You better get seriously religious and, and you better hope that somehow the good you've done outweighs the bad. And that's not abnormal. That's the most common thing in the world to believe, like, like karma. That if you've done something bad, the universe is watching and what goes around comes around, so you better fix it and you better start giving and you better start being nice to your parents and you better start being a better person than you are so that you somehow hope that you won't be reincarnated in some nasty way in the life to come. It's what people believe. Good people are saved. They go to heaven and bad people don't. That's what the world tells you. But Jesus is unique. Jesus met people who were drunks and prostitutes and messed up sinners and he loved them. He didn't wait until they balanced the scales. He didn't give them a year to fix their karma. He just loved them. He forgave them and he saved them. He reached out to the worst of people and told stories about prodigal children who had run far from their fathers to prove that on the day that we reach out to him in faith, it's all good. And he fixes it. It's the incredible uniqueness of, of Jesus that we can actually like, feel good about our relationship with God. We, we don't have to doubt or worry or wonder, like, is, is he okay with me? Is, am I suffering because he's mad at me? Is God going to get me? What's going to happen when I die? I hope I'm good enough. Pfft, like, Christians don't have to think that way because we believe in a unique Jesus who offered us something called grace. Love with no strings attached. Mercy and, and forgiveness that is new every single morning. The Quran says that Jesus Christ did not die on the cross. He fainted. And that's why he appeared alive on Easter morning. But I want to tell you that's not true. Number one, the Romans were pretty good at killing people. And number two, he had to die. Remember what we read from the prophet Isaiah? He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds were healed. <laughs> he, he had to die so that we could be healed. He had to give his life. He, he had to close his mouth and suffer on the cross because he wanted you to walk out of church today with hope, with confidence, and with peace in your relationship with God. He wanted the, the good things that you do because they do matter to God. Not to be done for selfish reasons. I got to fix my karma before I die. That wouldn't be serving anyone. But if you know that you're already good with God, you can serve people out of a truly selfless heart because you want to. And God's love inspires you. It's the uniqueness of Jesus' message. Grace is the teaching that only Christianity offers. And it's yours through faith in him. And that's what I told that young guy. <laughs> I wasn't expecting the question in the lobby after church last week. You know, Pastor, there's a lot of beliefs and they all say we should love each other. Do you agree with that? And I said, well, I agree with that. But how can those religions help me when I mess up? When I don't keep the golden rule and I don't love my children, my wife, my neighbor, as myself, what do they offer me then? Because I don't need karma. I need a God of compassion. And this book offers it. And so I want to encourage you to do, do today what I try to do every day is to pick up this holy book. Because it's not just the Bible, it's wonderful and it's different. 
I have 33 books on the stack. I have six more next to my bed at home to read before the end of the series. But those books will be read and put on the office and on the bookshelf while one book remains. Waiting for me at the end of every day, there for me when I wake up every morning, whose words tell me that God's mercy is always new and his love never fails. I pray more than anything else that gives you a reason to believe this is not just some book. It's a holy book. It's a book that comes from God. Let's pray. Dear Holy Spirit, only you can convince us it's true. Uh, we wouldn't just be skeptical of where this book came from. We would be skeptical about your love. And the father of lies would accuse us so many times that we would doubt that we could actually be saved and good with you right now because of what Jesus has done. And so we pray for faith. We pray today that your word would not come back empty, but it would fill our hearts. We pray that it would be living and active and powerful and faith would come from hearing this message. God, I pray for good roots. Uh, you know that we deal with our skepticism and our doubt, not just by sitting and Googling and asking questions, but by opening these pages and finding good answers from you. So I pray today for good priorities, that today's message would not just be for intellect, but for obedience, that it would lead us to a greater passion and pursuit of you through this word. God, there's always going to be another show on Netflix. Amazon Prime is always going to promote the latest thing. But this ancient text has what we're really looking for, lifelong eternal happiness in your presence. So help us to seek you in this book. Give us understanding to grasp it and give us faith to believe it's true, that you love us and you always will. We pray this all, Jesus, in your beautiful name. Amen.